Church. We're going to be continuing our time in the letter of James, a series that we're calling A Faith Made Visible. We're going to pick up in James chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, we've got some ushers walking down the aisles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you would like to read along, I, I would recommend you grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself, please keep that as a gift. We're going to pick up on page 655 in the Bibles that are being handed out. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word, God. We believe that it is living and active. That it, that it is written and spoken to us so that we might know you. That by it you reveal yourself to us. And so, God, we ask, would, would you be true to that this morning? Would you speak to us? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would we know you by your word this morning? May it have power. May it have life. May it, may it bring faith to your people. God, I pray that where it needs to, to convict, that it would be convicting. Where it needs to encourage, it would be encouraging. Where it needs to edify, it would be edifying. But God, we ask that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. And God, as our, our children go to their classes and they hear of this same word, would you speak to them? Would you reveal yourself to our children that they might know you, that they might trust in you, and that they might run after you all the days of their life? God, would you be glorified in our presence this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If your children are going to class, now is the time that they can be dismissed. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. What a beautiful morning. It was, uh, took a while for the fog to clear, but it's cleared now, right? Blue sky on your way in? Good, good, beautiful. I love it. Spring is fully here. Summer's on the way. Uh, just a quick mention before I dive in. Um, we had a couple weeks ago our first vision and prayer uh, time for our upcoming church plant in downtown Puyallup. Really excited about what the Lord is doing, moving some steps forward as we look to to plan and to see the gospel go forward in downtown Puyallup. Uh, we want all of you, this is not just those that are going planting, but all of us that are a part of seeing Summit Downtown Puyallup planted. And we got uh, some fridge magnets with some prayer points printed up. And so these are available out on the connect table. It's a great chance for you to just be praying as you go. You open your fridge probably what, 20 times a day, 30 times a day? You can read this, be praying for all that we're, we're trusting God for uh, as we go forward with this church plan. Those are available on the Connect table. And I just remind you, I know it got mentioned on the video, but uh, next Sunday evening uh, at 6 p.m. down at the Reality Sports Facility, we're actually going to be having another time of, of prayer and, and vision together. So we'd love for you to join us for that. All right, uh, James chapter 5. Wow. Buckle up. You guys ready? This is a hard, a hard text that we're going to dive into. Um, I, I might be dating myself a little bit here with this reference, but in the 80s and 90s, there was a TV show that got syndicated on television that some of you might remember. It was, it was hosted by a guy named Robin Leach, and it followed uh, the lives of the uber-wealthy. It was kind of like this, this backstage look at different people's lives, the lives of actors, business moguls, celebrities, musicians, kind of this, this window in on what life looks like for the rich. And Robin Leach always closed the show uh, with this particular line. He, the show would end, and he would raise his glass in a toast to all of our Champagne hopes and caviar dreams. Anyone remember this show? 
Yeah, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, right? It ran for about 12 years. It was canceled in 1995. Uh, but on its heels, there followed all kinds of other types of shows with a similar premise, right? This, these shows that give us a window in on how the, the rich live. Now, I think those shows are popular in our culture for a couple of different reasons. One, we love celebrity in America, and so we're fascinated to have this inside look at the, the lives of celebrities. But the second reason I think they're popular is actually a bit of a paradox within us. We watch those shows and we feel just this measure of envy toward the rich, right? We, we want our lives to be like theirs, and yet at the same time we watch those shows and feel this lingering sense of moral superiority over those people, right? We, on the one hand, envy the uber-wealthy, and on the other hand, we sort of look down our nose at them, right? There's this subconscious sneer that we think, well, thank God I am not like those rich people. It's interesting, though, how we perceive wealth in our life. Fidelity Investments uh, did a recent survey of their top clients. These were people that had a million dollars or more in investments with Fidelity. That, well, I'm not just talking about like a million dollars in assets, like things they own. This is a million dollars in their investment portfolio, a million dollars just to have fun with. And Fidelity did this survey and basically asked this group of people about their perception of their own wealth. Get this, none of them thought they were wealthy. Now, if that's true for them, how much more is that true for us? I'm guessing that most of us this morning don't come in looking at our bank accounts and our assets and the things that we own, how much our income is, and view ourselves as wealthy. But do you realize that in the eyes of the majority of the world, looking in on the day-to-day life that we live is like watching an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. America is the wealthiest country, it's the wealthiest culture in the history of the world. And most of us don't think of ourselves as as wealthy. But get this, if you own at least $10,000 in assets, so basically if you own a car and you own a computer, you are wealthier than 90% of the world. You just did your income tax. If your family income is over $50,000, you are in the top 1% of earners on this planet. Last year, the median uh, family income uh, in the world was $2,100 US dollars a year. That means that half of the world's population makes less than that in a year. We're incredibly wealthy. I think often we, we don't realize how materially rich we really are. We don't, we don't see ourselves in global and historical perspective. And I think that's why this passage here in James chapter 5 is incredibly important for us. And James warns us here of the, the great danger that wealth, that riches, that consumerism, that materialism can be riches that are used in the wrong way or used for the wrong things, James says, merit the severest punishment of God. That's weighty this morning. And so that's why I say buckle your seatbelt. We're continuing this morning this series that we've been in in James. We actually just have a couple weeks left after, after this. And I think I, 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 it, there's been a sense of foreboding in me knowing I'm preaching this passage from the time we started James. Because this is, the, I think, the most difficult passage in the entire letter of James. Now, James, throughout this letter, he's been this good pastor for us, right? He's been pushing us, encouraging us toward a sort of genuine Uh, all-in, wholehearted discipleship, right? James wants our doctrine and our deeds to line up, right? He wants our cognitive head knowledge, the way that we think about God, to line up with our functional street-level theology, right? James is hoping that we don't just give lip service to Jesus, but that we actually trust Him and obey Him in every area of our life. 
And so as you track through the book of James, James has pressed obedience, what it means to follow Jesus in all of these different areas from how we go through trial and temptation to how we treat other people to how we, how we deal with our tongue all the way till last week basically telling us how we think about using Google Calendar, right? How we make plans for today or tomorrow. James wants our faith to work itself out in every area of our life. Now last week, at the end of chapter 4, James pressed what genuine faith looks like in what we do with our time, what we do with our plans. This week in chapter 5, he's pressing us to think about what genuine faith looks like in what we do with our treasure, what we do with our money, with what we possess. Now, because this passage is so unique, I want to approach it just slightly differently this morning. Uh, Because it's such a difficult passage, I want to do a little bit more work on the front end here this morning to to launch us in a little bit more work by way of explanation, by way of of context for you so we know what's going on here in James. So you're going to have to kind of lean in and stick with me through some explanation of this, and I think we'll see the fruit at the back end of that uh, in really understanding what it is that God wants to press on us as as a people this morning from this passage. So grab your Bibles. You'll want to have them with you and be able to track along with this James chapter 5 and verse 1. Let's begin reading uh, together here in verse 1. James 5, 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, if you have an NIV, New International Version, it actually translates this verse Now listen, you rich. Yeah, saying, listen up, you rich people. Okay, turn your ear to hear this, James is saying. Now, when we hear that invitation, that command to the rich, the the question, the first question that we have to ask of this text is, who are these rich people that James is addressing? James is about to launch into this word of judgment and condemnation, so we better know who it is that James is speaking to. Who is this word to? Now, that might seem like an obvious question to you, right? James is writing this letter. We've gone through this every week. Who's he writing this letter to? He's writing this letter to the church. This letter is to Christians. And so it seems obvious on the surface that James here is addressing rich Christians within the church. But hold on for a second. There's some clues here, starting in verse 1, that this particular passage is unique within the book of James. There's some clues here that this word of judgment isn't for rich folks within the church, but it's actually a word of judgment toward the rich outside of the church. Toward unbelieving, unrighteous, rich, wealthy folk outside of the community of faith. Now, why would I say that? What, what would make us think that James suddenly, in chapter 5 and verse 1, changes who he's addressing and starts specifically talking to unrighteous folk, unrighteous rich people outside of the church? Okay, a couple of clues that I see in the text. This is where I'm asking you to lean in and track with me why I'm saying this. Clue number one. This is not, if you're familiar with James, the first time that James has addressed the issue of rich and poor in this letter, is it? You can turn back there, but you remember probably in chapter 2 when James dealt with, with rich folks coming into the church that he actually said that it was the rich who were dragging these Christians into court. He says that it's the rich who have been oppressing you. These rich folk outside of the church were blaspheming the name of Christ. They were opposing these believers. And so as James addresses the rich here, in the minds of these Christians, in the minds of these church, this church, there is a tangible, visible group of rich folks outside of the church who are oppressing them, who are persecuting them, who are making life hard for them. And so That changes the way we think about that. So that's clue number one. Clue number two. I want you to think about James's language here. Now, up until this point, if you've been reading James, you've been in this this series with us, you'll probably agree that James has been firm, but he's also been incredibly gentle, hasn't he? And throughout this letter, if you go back through the book, you'll actually see this. James refers to his readers over and over with this affectionate tone, this familial tone. He calls them brothers and sisters over and over. In fact, he says it several times. He calls them beloved brothers and sisters. 
Now, certainly he, he calls them to get off of the fence in their Christianity, to stop having a foot in both their kingdom and God's kingdom, but he does it with this pastoral gentleness, reminding them in just all kinds of ways of the grace of God and how it's entered into their life. But suddenly, here in chapter 5, James switches from this pastoral tone to a prophetic tone. A prophetic tone. And this is the most severe language in this entire letter. In fact, it's some of the most severe language in the whole New Testament. What, what James says in these six verses, beginning at verse 1, is just relentless. I mean, James doesn't offer any glimmer of mercy. He doesn't hint at any of God's grace here. There's no call to repentance for these rich people. There's just this purely prophetic word of judgment and condemnation. Look at the look at the language here if you got your bible in front of you. Verse 1. Come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 3. Your corrode your your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Wow. Hard language. And James's language actually has a familiar ring to it. It actually parallels, in a lot of ways, the language of the Old Testament prophets. If you spend any time in the prophets, you'll, you'll hear some echoes here in the way James speaks, which is interesting because we're actually, in three weeks from now, going to be spending our summer in, going through nine of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, this section of scripture I think most Christians have no clue about. Okay, it's the, the section of scripture we, don't, we tend not to want to read. We're going to spend our summer there going through a book a week for nine weeks, skipping over a couple that we want to do sermon series on eventually. But it's interesting that there's these parallels between what James is saying to us and what the prophets are pushing. And what's interesting, and we're going to see this in this Minor Prophets series, is that often in those books, throughout the prophets, there are these moments when God speaks a word of judgment on Israel's enemies, on Edom and on Assyria and on Babylon. Now, what's interesting about that, stick with me here, is that as, as the prophets give these words of judgment to Israel's enemies, they are not words that ever get spoken to Edom and Assyria and Babylon. They're not words that God is telling his people to take there. They are words about God's enemies to God's enemies for the benefit of his people. That's interesting as we come to this text right here. It seems to me that that is the same thing that James is doing. James is delivering this word of judgment to the rich who are oppressing these Christians. But, but he's saying these things not to be heard by the unrighteous rich outside of the church, still less to be taken by the church and wielded as a weapon against those rich outside of the church. He's writing about the rich outside of the church for the benefit of the people inside of the church. He's declaring this word of prophetic judgment in a lot of ways within earshot of these Christians so that they can overhear what it is that he actually thinks about and is going to do about those unrighteous rich. Now, the question is, why is James doing that? What's James's purpose in this? Are you following where we're going here in this logic? What's James's purpose? Well, it's both encouragement and it's exhortation for them. It's both encouragement and it's exhortation. James is encouraging these Christians. He's trying to strengthen them by telling them the judgment that's coming to the rich who are oppressing them. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of these rich that are oppressing you. Their end is sure. God is going to judge them. Don't be afraid of them. Still less, don't take justice into your own hands with them. God is going to deal with them. And so there's this encouragement that's given to them. But there's also a warning. And the warning to them is this. Not only don't be afraid of them, but don't become like them. Don't start envying them. 
Don't desire their lifestyle. What, whatever you do, don't become like them. Now, by giving this word of judgment that the church can hear, James is saying both. Don't be intimidated by the rich and don't imitate them. Don't be intimidated, but also don't imitate them. Now, uh, just a word to the side about that. If we think about the global church for a second, right? Think about the church worldwide, not just the church in America, the global church. This encouragement of God's eventual punishment of the rich, the rich who oppress Christians, is, is actually a huge help. Now, all over the world, there are impoverished Christians worldwide being oppressed, being persecuted, being opposed by rich and powerful people. In countries like Iran, in China, in Indonesia, this is everyday life for believers. And so those believers are going to read a word like James's word in their context And what they're going to hear is a word that actually strengthens them to graciously and joyfully walk through some of the hardest persecution, knowing that God is going to deal justly eventually with these oppressors. Now, most of us don't deal with oppression from the rich on a daily basis, do we? And so for us, I think... James's encouragement is helpful, but it's not actually what we need to hear first. What we need to hear first is actually James's exhortation to us, James's warning, because there is an allure of riches for every one of us. There's a way, I think, if any of us are honest with ourselves, that in this culture that we find ourselves in, the, the, the pull, the suck, the, the grabbing hold of, of materialism and consumerism in our lives is much stronger than we often want to admit. This chase for wealth and security that so mark uh, the culture around us is something that we can easily start walking into. Now the issue here isn't money itself. Okay, the, the rich here aren't being judged for having riches, for, for having wealth, but they're, they're being judged for what they do and what they don't do with those resources. And there, there, there are three issues here, three beefs that sort of God has with the rich and what they do with their treasure, how they use their wealth. And so I just want to unpack those three issues that God's taking up with the rich, those three beefs that God has. So Here's the first. The first beef God takes up with the rich is this. It's that they hoard their treasure. They hoard it. Look with me at verse 2 here. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And then here's James's summary you have laid up treasure in the last days. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now God's issue with these particular rich folks is not that they've laid up or that they've saved treasure. Okay, he's not worried about them saving. The Bible actually isn't against saving, okay? And the Bible says that there's wisdom in how we manage our money. The book of Proverbs says to us, like, look at the ant, Look at how, the, how she stores up during the, the harvest so that she's ready for the winter. So there's, there's wisdom to saving. The Bible isn't against saving. God's issue here isn't with you having a 401k or a, a savings account or financial investments. The, the issue isn't with saving wealth. The issue is actually with hoarding wealth. And here's the picture that James is giving here in, this, in these few verses. The, the, the picture is of just massive waste. The, the owner of this stuff that he's pointing to has so much stuff that it's actually started to rot. And their, their wardrobe is so massive that the clothes that they don't wear have begun to be eaten by moths. Their, their unused jewelry is sitting in their jewelry box corroding. It's just this picture of the folly of amassing stuff just for the sake of it. 
And this is Luke 12, right? If you're familiar with Jesus' parable there, Jesus tells the parable of a man who had these abundance of crops. And he wonders, what should I do with these crops? Where should I store them? And what does he do? He tears down his barns and he, he builds bigger barns to store all of his grain and all of his goods And he puts all of his trust in just this massive amount of stuff that he's stockpiled. And that's the picture that James is giving us here of the rich. You know, we we live in a society, I think in 2019, where the, the accumulation of stuff has just become an end in itself. I mean, just think about how much you, you're marketed to every day in your life to get more stuff. Billboards, TV spots, radio ads, all telling you that if what you've got is just a couple of years old, then it's time for you to get something newer, better, bigger, faster, sexier, more, right? The, the newest thing on the market. I saw somewhere recently that on average, through all different forms of media, most of us see 350 different ads per day. We're being discipled in our lives by consumerism. Our entire economy depends on us buying and getting more stuff. I drive down uh, Canyon Road uh, on my way to South Hill, home and back every day, and there's a, a brand new big self-storage warehouse being built down near 160th and Canyon. I mean, self-storage, if you haven't noticed, is big business here, right? And why? Because our garages are already overflowing. I mean, how many of you park your car in your garage? I don't, because I don't have space, <laughs> Right? Our garages are overflowing with stuff. We're, we're hoarders. And we watch shows like hoarding to make us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> and James says to the rich here, your moth-eaten clothes and your corroded wealth, your, your hoarded treasure, this stuff that you are piling up in your life, it's evidence against you. Why is this such an issue for God? It's an issue for him because he is ultimately the giver of wealth, isn't he? I mean, he's the provider of of all of these good gifts, and he's given them to his creation, not not for them to be hoarded and grabbed and held onto. He's given us these gifts to be used. I mean, think of it from from the creation story on. I mean, the creation story itself, God's gifts were given to humanity as this stewardship. They weren't meant to be grabbed or held on to. Humans weren't meant to be this, this end point of God's blessing where it, it just stopped on them. They, they're meant to be this conduit of it, these dispensers of all that God gives to them. They're meant to give to the rest of the world. This is why God says to Abraham, I, I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing, right? We're supposed to be conduits for God's good gifts. God's intention was always that we treasure Him and that we use His gifts. We treasure Him and use His gifts. But man, we flip that on its head. This is what Romans 1 tells us is our fundamental problem, that instead of treasuring God and using His gifts, we treasure His gifts and we use Him. And what makes it worse, I think, James adds here at the end of verse 3, look, look there with me, what makes all of this worse is that the, these rich that he's condemning, that he's judging, have hoarded treasure in the last days. In the last days. Now, what does James mean by this phrase, in the last days? Well, when the New Testament, little, little tip for when you're reading, the Bible, reading your Bible, reading your New Testament, whenever your New Testament refers to in the last days, it's not talking about some short period of time right before Jesus comes back. It's actually talking about the entire time period between Jesus' first and second coming. These last 2,000 years have all been a part for us of the last days, this last epoch age of history before God brings everything to a consummation. And James is saying that what makes this type of hoarding even worse for the rich is that they haven't taken into account at all the fact that God's kingdom is breaking into this world and Jesus is on the cusp of returning. 
It's so easy for us to just forget those realities in our own life, isn't it? And John Piper puts it this way in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I think all of us can relate to just the forgetfulness that we have of this last day's moment that we, that we live in. Piper says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys the world loves, right? That's all of us. We, we naturally love the same things the world loves. But he finds himself, he says, I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs. And I'm using my money just the way that everyone else does. Now hear this. He says, I start to forget the war. I start to forget the war. I start to forget that we live in this moment when kingdoms are clashing against each other, when the kingdom of self is rebelling against the kingdom of God. I forget that there's this war going on in this world. And then he says, I don't think much about people perishing, missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. How many of us can relate to that kind of forgetfulness of this moment that we live in? In light of these, these ultimate realities, right, that God's making His glory known in the world, in light of the eternity that we're going to spend with Him in a new creation, what is all this stuff? I mean, it's just perishable. I mean, it's the nature of stuff, it's the nature of money, it's the nature of possessions to just rot to corrode, to decompose stuff was never created to last. And there's a shelf life on all of our stuff unless we use it. Unless we use it. And so as Christians, we, we don't stockpile wealth and possessions. We, we actually employ them for God's glory. And we live with this awareness that life is short, that God's kingdom is eternal, and that His glory is ultimate. And so we use our treasure to build up His kingdom, not our own kingdom. And George Mueller, if any of you know his story, was such a good example of this. He was a 19th century pastor in Bristol, England, and just spent so much of his life giving himself to the cause of God's kingdom through missions abroad and through caring for orphans and, um, and adopting, I mean, through his orphanages, adopting all of these children, welcoming them. He gave his life to this. And most of his biographers think that there were several million dollars of money that just went in and out of George Mueller's hand throughout his life. And he died with none of it because he was just a conduit for God's blessing to go out. He used what God gave him. He didn't stockpile it. He didn't hoard it. So this is God's number one beef, the hoarding of our treasure Here's the second issue that God has, his, his second beef with these rich people. These rich don't care about justice. They don't care about justice. Look, look with me at verse 4 here. James says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now we've got to go back a little bit into James's culture, into James's day. James lived in this agrarian society where there were essentially two classes of people. There were the rich who owned the land, and there were the poor who worked the land. And the poor were often these day laborers who worked for a single day and then were paid at the end of the day for that day's work. And it wasn't uncommon for these rich, wealthy landowners to conveniently forget to pay their workers or even to cheat them out of the fair wage that they were due. They were lining their own pockets on the, the backs of these impoverished workers and James says here that even though no one else might know this, even though no one else might care, that injustice toward the poor has reached the Lord's ears. The Lord cares about the poor. That, that language rings with Exodus-type language, doesn't it? Of God hearing the cries of His people. God hears the reality of the poor here, and He's not happy with it church, we need to hear this because I think there is a way for us that our wealth, our affluence, our comfort, it can actually make us very easily insensitive or even unaware of the struggles and needs of the poor. 
We can just forget about it conveniently because of the bubble of wealth that we tend to live in. There's always a really close relationship in any society. You look throughout uh, the history of civilization, there's always a very close relationship between wealth and power. And we're a little bit reluctant to admit that because we, we think we live in this country where um, you know, capitalism and democracy blend perfectly. And so, of course, no one has more power than another. But even in our society, the, the wealthy very easily have a power and an influence to do great good and to do great harm in inordinate measure. And so when the accumulation of wealth, well, when, when really when greed becomes the driving force for people or for cultures, there, there's all kinds of potential for people to get neglected and get run over. When profit at all costs becomes the ultimate driver of business or of an individual's life, it becomes really easy to overlook the needs of others. And nothing is more opposite to the very heart of God toward those who are poor and needy. God's judgment on this kind of injustice, an injustice that that puts riches above everything, this this judgment of God here on the riches attitude in this way, it should do some things in us. First, I think it should really change the way that Christians do business. There are a number I know of small business owners here at Summit, and for Christian business owners, the, the bottom line just is not the bottom line. Now, I'm not saying that uh, you should run your business into the ground. Like, being a profitable business is, is an important part of being a Christian business owner, but it isn't ultimate. It's not what's ultimate. I'm so grateful for examples of great, some great companies that run on some of Christian principles like Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, that, that treat their employees well, right? They care about the well-being of their employees. And I've seen folks in this church that, that own businesses where making money for them is not their highest priority. They, they think through a different lens. And this is the lens that, as Christians, we have to think through with business. It's, it's not, how can I use my employees to better my business? It's, how can my business be used to better these employees, to bless them with what God's given to me? And so that's important for, for Christian business owners. But not all of us are business owners, are we? Some of us are just plain consumers, right? We live, we buy stuff, we make our way forward in the world, and I think God's hatred of the way that the rich use the poor to advance their own lifestyle, to advance their own riches, to advance their own greed, that should actually really speak to us as consumers as well. Our culture, I think, today is consumed with consuming, and the market is just flooded with goods. There's more stores popping up selling stuff today than I've ever seen uh, in history, I think, right? We're, we have stuff available everywhere, and the demand for stuff is always bigger and better and cheaper. And many of you are well aware, maybe, of even fast fashion. How many of you have heard of fast fashion? Nobody. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that hand. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah, it used to be that clothing stores would turn their clothes over two, three, maybe four times a year. These days, it's every two or three weeks that you can go in to Forever 21, H&M, and you can buy yourself a brand new wardrobe for a couple hundred dollars and turn that over once a month. But that benefit for us, that convenience to feed our lavish lifestyles, it has consequences that we don't see. And the cost of that that benefits us is often borne by, by workers in places that we'll never look at. In sweatshops and with child labor, poor working conditions. Now I'm not saying by pointing that out that all of us as a church need to jump on the bandwagon of another issue, Okay. I'll let your conscience speak to you as you do some, some research and some thinking on that. But for me this week, as I read this passage, and I thought, I'm not a landowner. I'm not a Christian businessman. But I had to ask myself, how, do, how does my desire for a certain type of lifestyle, certain conveniences, how does that impact the poor in ways that I don't even know? And often it's just not even being aware that our desire for the cheapest, biggest thing has consequences around the globe 
In a global society, it affects all kinds of other people. And so we need to care about justice for those who are poor. So that's number two. Number three, this is the, f- the third issue that God has with the rich. Number one is that they hoard their wealth. Number two is that they don't care about justice. Number three is that their wealth is all about them. Their wealth is all about them. L- look at verse five here. James says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The problem with these rich is that they've spent their wealth only on themselves. They, They see themselves as the center of everything. And their goal in life has been to have the most comfort, the most ease, the most lavish lifestyle that they can possibly have. And they've, they've done it without any consideration of the judgment of God that's actually coming down the pipe. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, James says. There's this scene in Charlotte's Web uh, where Wilbur the pig is um, enjoying all of the good food that the farmer is feeding to him. In fact, the farmer is bringing these huge buckets of delicious slop and filling his trough with them. And Wilbur can't help but just be delighted in the lavishness of what's laid out for him there to feast on. But then one of the sheep in in the stall next to him breaks the bad news to him. They're fattening you up because they're going to kill you. Turn you into smoked bacon and ham. Well, that wakes Wilbur up very quickly. And the rest of Charlotte's Web, right, tells the story of how he aims to avoid that end. James is saying here that the, the mistake that the rich make, they're, they're living in luxury, right? They're feasting now, but in their foolishness, they don't realize that they're just preparing themselves for the judgment of God that's coming down. Now James here, by highlighting this luxury and self-indulgence, he's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy life or, or, or enjoy the good things that God's given to us, right? If you go back and listen, there's all kinds of places that uh, Ryan and myself have actually preached from passages where we advocate enjoying the good things God's given to us. I love a good steak, a good cup of coffee. I think it's good and right that we, we enjoy the beauty of our homes and our yards. Those things aren't wrong. They can all be enjoyed for the glory of God. However, there is a point where we move from just enjoying God's gifts into an area of luxury and selfish indulgence. Now the question is, where is that point? Where is that point where we move from just sheer enjoyment of God's gifts for his glory to luxury and self-indulgence? Tim Keller asked that question in one of his sermons, and I think it's an important question, right? That's what, what all of us want to know. You're like, Ben, can you just tell me where that point is? Like, just give me the line. Like, how big of a house should a Christian have? Is 3,000 square feet okay? Can they do 5,000? Is that permitted for any Christian? Uh, uh, how many pairs of shoes should a Christian have? And how expensive can those shoes be? Can they be $150? Can they be 200 Can they be 500 like, we want the answer to this, right? Is a BMW okay or just a Volvo? I, I mean, these are the questions that we, we sometimes want answered. Where, where's the line of luxury and self-indulgence? Because we want to get up as close to it as we can, right? As close to it as we can afford anyway. Now, for all of us, though, that's going to look different, isn't it? We have to have an openness, I think, to, to God's Word and to His community. We have to open our lives and our motivations and our intentions up to one another to actually allow people to ask us the hard questions about where, where our motives are, to bring those things before the Lord and let Him prick our conscience about those things. I mean, ultimately, the question for us is, is my use of wealth centered on me and on my kingdom, or is it centered on God and His kingdom? Is my use of wealth centered on me and my kingdom, or is it centered on God and His kingdom? You know, I notice uh, in me, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, maybe if you're my generation or younger, you can, because I think we tend to it more. I notice such an entitlement in me. I spent 10 years in China, and I still feel this entitlement. I grew up in a family that was upper middle class. We never worried month to month about where the money was coming from. My sister and I were always able to do the things that we wanted to do, play the sports that we wanted to play. 
And so there are so many things in my life that I, I just think of as needs. I think I have a right to them. I deserve them. I think so easily many of us slide into this place of self-indulgence just because we feel entitled to it. And so there's a conscious decision that all of us as Christians, I think, ought to make. There's a discipline that we ought to have to actually live below our means by intention. Giving actually helps us to do that. When When we give, especially, I don't think there's actually a New Testament law that we need to give 10%. I think the, everything is the Lord's. And so 10% is a good starting point. But there's a way that when we're living on 90% of our income, right, it pulls us back from always living on the maximum of what we have. It allows us to kind of put a governor on our lifestyle decisions. And we do that not to just look a certain way to other people. We do that because that, that makes clear to everyone around us that God is our treasure, not our stuff. That His good gifts are ultimately about Him, right? And, and not about us. Wealth is a really dangerous thing. Now, I don't think James is saying that it's wrong for us to be rich at all. I'm not trying to advocate a rich guilt here. I think we should be grateful that God's placed us in 2019 in America. But God does take major issue with our hoarding and our injustice and our self-indulgence. Now, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you a question because I I think James is hinting at something here in verse 6, and I want to touch on it. Why, Why is God so upset about this? Why does this kind of hoarding and self-indulgence and injustice merit this incredibly severe judgment of God? Why does God have a beef with what's going on here? Well, it's because the attitudes and the actions of these rich folk, their greed and their stinginess and their self-absorption are are actually antithetical. They're the exact opposite of God and His character and nature. And the entire gospel, right, is built on this foundation of the incredible, lavish generosity of God. In verse 6, James gives this last indictment toward these rich people. Read read it with me if you've got your Bibles in front of you. Stick with me for just a couple more minutes. I want to press this. Verse 6, he gives this last indictment toward the rich. He, He tells them, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, what's James saying? Now, it might have been true in this, in this moment, in this context, in this situation, it might have been true generally that these unrighteous rich had dragged these believers into court. They'd persecuted them. They'd oppressed them. It's possible that they'd even murdered some of them. But that's not actually the language that James uses here. Even though he might be alluding to that, that's not the language he uses here. He actually says literally... You have murdered, condemned and murdered the righteous one. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one. Now, I think James is hinting at something. I think he's hinting at the fact that this type of greed, this type of injustice, this misuse of all of God's good gifts, this thing that he's judging these rich people for is exactly the type of thing that put Jesus on the cross. And yet, Jesus, the righteous one, went to that cross and did not resist, right? He went there willingly, volitionally, by his own choice. And so church, can we just look at this and see the generosity of God displayed in the gospel for a moment? All of us, our worldly wealth is derivative. What I mean by that is is that it it comes in an ultimate sense only from God. It's not something that, that we possess, but we use God's wealth for ourselves. God uses his wealth for us. The one who was ultimately wealthy, the one who was ultimately rich, he didn't hoard it. He didn't use it in this self-indulgent way. I mean, what's crazy is that all of the gods of Greek mythology, all of the gods through a ton of different cultures in the history of the world have seen the essential nature of godness in the ability of those gods to indulge themselves, to feast and to drink up in their Mount Olympus or whatever it is. And yet, 
the true God, the God of the Bible, instead of hoarding his wealth, he comes down in the person of Jesus. He doesn't just care for the poor, right? He becomes poor himself. And he dies on the cross, this death that all of us deserve. Now, all of our injustices, all of our hoarding, all of our, uh, our misuses of God's wealth, they have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And we deserve the day of slaughter, church. And yet, in sheer generosity, God has rescued us from that day of slaughter that we deserve through the death and resurrection of His Son. And this is the generosity of Jesus that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8-9, right? That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And when we look at the generosity of God in the Gospel, I think it frees us from so many of the pitfalls of wealth, from our tendency to hoard, to do injustice, to live for ourselves. You know, if your perspective is that God is stingy, or that God doesn't exist, and this life is all that there is, how can you help but hoard and hold on to things for yourselves. But if you understand and you know and you look at the sheer generosity of God, it makes us into a generous people. When we know the wealth, the inheritance that we have in Christ, it makes us wide open with all of our stuff and all of our possessions and all of our riches to use for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come. Worship team, you can come on up as we pray. Father, we repent for the ways that we have so easily been blind to the wealth that You've given us. Lord, would You make us into conduits for Your generosity to pour out into the lives of all kinds of people for Your kingdom, not ours. In Jesus' name, Amen.